Hey everyone, welcome to the Green Divas radio show. You're on with Green Diva Meg. And Green Diva Lynn. Yay, of course. How enthusiastic you sound. Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> well, it was a holiday weekend, so yeah. we're both a little bit pooped. Yeah, feels like it's a Monday, but like after an extra big weekend. And you did have an extra big weekend, didn't you? Yeah, happy to say I did take public transportation all the way to, um, well, it was really the border of Indiana and Michigan. Wow. Stayed at a cottage. Uh, my friend Beth has a cottage there, and it's a half mile from the lake, a beautiful beach there. Yeah, I was a little jealous. And I took the train, and I took way too much stuff, (laughs) as usual. A green diva doesn't travel light. Right. Well, I had to have my smoothie stuff. Well, so I saw the pictures, and I was like, wow, that looks like, you know, who knew? Yeah, it was a blast. Who knew? Like It was beautiful. Lake Michigan really looks like a tropical oasis there. Yeah, it can. I know. Beautiful spot. Despite the microbeads that were really growing into the, the lake. Oh, yeah, like every, every body of water is having their microbead issue now, right? That's right. So, I don't see any, though, I'm happy to say. Well, that's good. So, you know, speaking of that, we do have a f- pretty funny Green Diva Confessions that was born of your weekend away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> you know it. You talk to me. <laughs> Just, you know, I don't want to say anything more about it. You have to, you know, everybody has to just keep listening to find out what that's all about. There you go. All I'm going to say is lobster. That's all I'm going to say. They don't know what that means. I don't know. We have a great um, feature this week with a a, a man who is an award-winning photographer. He's an explorer. He's broken. He's he's gotten record breaking stuff i don't i don't even know exactly what he didn't say oh, but wow. yeah oh, as yeah. an explorer he's just really amazing primarily in these northern you know antarctica and arctic, mm-hmm. the arctic. we love our explorers that we have on the show yeah we have some really interesting dudes so this guy sebastian copeland has written a couple of books he's done films and his photography is stunning but he has in his in all of that he's done exploring in these regions, really witnessed uh, climate change firsthand. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting conversation with Sebastian, and um, he's a cool guy. Can't wait to hear that. Literally cool, right? Which is good, because as we're doing this, it's like a 1,000 degrees in the studio, and I'm like, oh, let's talk about the Arctic Circle. You're sweating. Spanning. Spanning. Spitzing. Spitzing. <laughs> So then we have a fun green dude. You've got your own global warming going on. I I do. I have my own global warming. Studio. My little ecosystem's just you know frying over here, Um, (laughs) and that's a whole other segment. Green dude Rob Greenfield, who we we love chatting with. Rob, neat guy. He's got yeah, he's great. A tiny house, uh, and he talks literally. It's tiny. It's very tiny, and, and we were just commenting that he posted something that he lent his house to someone to take it to Burning Man, and it came up back all banged up. I was yeah, like, that's too bad. dude, what were you thinking, lending your house, your home to Burning someone? Burning Man's supposed to be a wild kind of thing. It is. It's pretty wild. We've got to go there sometime. Uh, apparently we do. But but then again, somebody did a whole a whole like carbon footprint, and it's a horrendous, um, horrendous environmental. Because they're always burning stuff. Well, Is that what they do there. I, I don't guess know. yeah, they do. They burn a lot of stuff. <laughs> so speaking of hot, <laughs> we have a uh, 
fun, eco-sexy segment with Wendy Strigar. Ooh la la. Ooh la la. And this one's about normal. Like, you know, what what is normal uh, when it comes to eco-sexuality? So, you know, folks, you just have to tune in. And I think this week we wanted to ask you to take a look at our YouTube page. Yeah. Um, which can be had from the top of our website, thegreendivas.com. There's a little icon up there on the the bar at the main page, right? Yeah, or you just go to YouTube and search The Green Divas, and you should be able to find us that way. Yeah, I mean, I had a page, which might be confusing, but I think that we, we started our own Green Divas page, and uh, we've got some really fun stuff going up there already. And, and more fun stuff to come. Lots of stuff coming up. Um, so please subscribe. You know, we'd appreciate it, and we promise to entertain. Yep, that's that's pretty much what we like to do. Yeah, that's, you know, inform, entertain, you know, inform and entertain, whatever. So <laughs> Say that seven times. Yeah, right. Well, so be informed and be entertained now. Please sit back and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Every Green Diva needs a sidekick. At the Green Divas radio show, they're called Green Dudes. Time now for a deeper shade of green from a guy's perspective. On again with the fabulous green dude, dude making a difference, Rob Greenfield. Hey, Rob. Hey, how's it going? It's good. And I adore your tiny house and it is tiny. I've seen... Uh, at least one video about your your um, amazing situation there. So tell us, like, tell us, tell us all about it. Well, I'm sitting in here right now with my girlfriend, Cheryl. <laughs> and, hey, Cheryl. Uh, <laughs> I, Shout out to Cheryl. <laughs> and it is raining in San Diego for the first time in quite a while. Yeah, so they I'm need it, yeah. Yeah, collecting rainwater. Uh, from my little rainwater harvesting system, which is only semi-functioning, so I'm running in and out <laughs> to make sure to collect it all. Um, but yeah, it's an awesome little spot. I've been here for seven months now, and it's uh, living off the grid in this little 50-square-foot tiny house in San Diego. So my question is, and I'm very familiar with San Diego because I have family there and we go there every year. Um but tell me, like, how did you get, did you buy the land? Are you leasing the land? Did someone give you some space or permission to be there? So when I first decided I wanted to live in a tiny house, I did some some research on the rules and the regulations behind it all, and I found that it's just not easy at all. Yeah. And in San Diego in particular, it's, I mean, there's a lot of places where it's challenging, but it doesn't get too much more challenging than San Diego, I don't think. Uh, one of the really challenging aspects is that if you're going to build another uh, another room, basically another even little tiny addition to the house here, I believe you need to build on, base, well, basically, if you're going to build another unit on your place, you need to also build another parking space, even if the person doesn't drive. Right. You, you so, drive a bicycle, it, for God's sakes. Yeah, I know. So, But what happens there is that there's not really places to build parking spots at all. So it just means that for the most part, you can't build tiny houses in San Diego from that alone. And then there's other regulations as well. So what I did is I actually put out a blog and I just said, looking for a home for my tiny home, 
on it and I explained the situation right. um, of of what to do with tiny homes in San Diego. And then I said that what I'd like to do is find a backyard that's not being used and I'll do a work exchange. So I'll build all these, I'll build things for you. Like I'll start a garden, yeah. set up rainwater harvesting, um, basically do ma- some manual labor around the place. And I've, I got about 10 people to respond. And this guy, uh, his name's Jim. He lives in Ocean Beach that I could um, use the spot. And, and uh, I think it's pretty good deal i built him a really nice fence and have done some pretty nice improvements to the place i think it's a pretty good mutual benefit cool so now the rainwater that you're dealing with and today for instance um is it primarily the water you'll use and did you set up a separate system for him so i'm staying here for just one or two years okay and the idea is that once i leave i'll leave behind all of the stuff gotcha for him to use so Right now, I'm using the rainwater harvesting system for myself, and then once I'm gone, it's all his. Okay, and um, you've got compost going there? Yeah, so um, I pretty much, it's, this is kind of, uh, I'd say a little bit of an experiment in sustainable living. Right. But it's just stuff that, all, uh, that has been done before, but I guess one of the kind of the differences here is that most people don't do all of it at once and really live it. And that's right. what I'm doing here. It's, it's, it's zero waste, pretty much home, off the grid. So I'm harvesting rainwater. 100% of my water at home comes from rain, powered up by solar panels. So no uh, electrical grid here. Um, no bills, really. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't have a bill to my name or a, or a debt to my name. So it's it's pretty great. It's, it's really, it's kind of extreme, this situation, but what I'm doing is showing people how far you can go in hopes that they will make small changes in their life. So that's really what it's about. It's how you can take all these sorts of things and adapt them into your life at home without having to maybe completely go off the grid or completely change your life, but be able to make changes that you'd like to at home. So now let's just, for instance, talk about the potty situation. What are we, what are we doing with that? So I... This is something that I had no clue about prior to diving into this sustainable living. Yeah. And so what I'm doing here is called humanure, which is just yeah. a combination of the words human and manure. Yeah. Humanure. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, I just have a basic compost toilet. Yeah. And there's a lot of different compost toilets, but I have the most simple, which is just a five-gallon bucket. Yep. You build a wooden base around that and put a toilet seat on that so it's nice and comfortable. And then when you fill the five-gallon bucket, it goes into a compost pile. And the compost pile is just a normal compost pile. It's three pallets, um, you know, that would have ended up in the landfill put together. And then the compost goes in in there, basically keeps dogs and critters and things out of there. Um, And then then, um, food waste, yard waste human waste goes into there and then one of the most important things with humanure is you have to let it from the last time you put human waste in there you have to let it compost for a year to be basically 100 percent certain that there's no right possibly harmful uh viruses or yep. bacteria yep. even though if it gets hot over 130 to 150 degrees say that those are going to be killed in the first three days anyway, and my compost pilot is, is steaming. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure everything in there is actually 
dead, but I still am following the basic yeah, precautions. I've actually used yeah. um, compost potties when I was at a farm camp once, and they used them. They had a separate compost for the human stuff, but they they did they they would you know let it go for at least a year, and and they would use it. Yeah, it's good to keep it separate because that way you can use your food waste and yard waste sooner in your garden. Right. So I, I personally, and the other way you can do it is you you can take one of the a fifty five gallon drum and actually do it uh, like my friend down the street does it in a sealed fifty five gallon drum. So that way you don't have to possibly worry about, especially in climates where you get flooding. Yeah. You want to do it in something like that or that's high ground. So. The Human Newer Handbook, if anybody's actually interested in it, is this awesome book that explains it all. Really, really Well, great I mean, that, that would be one of the issues I think most people would be like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's one thing to kind of live off the grid and have solar panels. And, you know, you obviously don't – I don't think you have a refrigerator, do you? No, no refrigerator. So I just go – I go to the co-op like every other day and just buy my produce fresh in yeah. small quantities. yeah. And then everything else I have in dry, dried bulk in jars. Yep. So simple stuff like rice, lentils, split peas, coconut shreds, flax, sesame, all that stuff I just buy in bulk, and then I just cook what I need at the time. So um, pretty cool to see that you don't – I mean, I also eat a plant-based diet, so no no meat, right. no animal products. Right. So you can actually live without a refrigerator pretty easily. Well – I would encourage people to go to your website, Rob, robgreenfield.tv, and check out the video. Uh, I think you have more than one video about about the tiny house and your living situation, and it's really fascinating. And uh, I, I'm I'm really glad you're sharing – you're doing all this and you're sharing it with all of us so we can see, you know, because it helps us understand, like, how do you do all this stuff? Totally. And, you know, even myself, four or five years ago, I was really clueless about how dependent I was on a system that causes so much destruction and and oblivious to the fact that my life was causing so much destruction around the world. And so what I'm doing is kind of just showing people you can do these things. And, and all these things are, that we, you know, most of what we are dealing with today is just a story that's been painted by humankind over the last couple hundred years and till very recently most of the things we're doing today would have been considered completely absurd just a short time ago well i mean and even if people can't conceive or you know they're just not in a situation where they can do what you're doing they can learn from what you've learned and and maybe they don't have to do human composting human waste composting, but they can really kind of get with the whole composting idea right and understand why you would even do that and yeah um, and the hopes really is that our government will create a system that's actually more sustainable so that we don't all have to deal with our own waste. Like, the ideal is that we just have a system that's much less wasteful in the first place. And we can push for that. But in the meantime, I have to go ahead and do these things. Yeah. You know, I think that the what you're doing and the way you're getting it out there is is helping all of us to, to and it's helping to highlight these issues. So keep trucking, man. And um, I'm looking forward to talking to you more. And I know we'll share uh, some of the stuff on our website, but people can go to robgreenfield.tv. 
TV and see what an amazing tiny world he's created. <laughs> a tiny, cool, sustainable world. Yep. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thanks for having me on. Want more information on this Green Dude segment and other ideas for low stress green living? Go to thegreendivas.com. That's T H E, greendivas.com. The Green Divas have a confession. We're not perfect, but we do our best to live a greener lifestyle and take action for the earth. Some of us still have to fill our cars with gas, and once in a while you might catch one of us drinking from a plastic water bottle <gasps> or using a paper towel. <sighs> Come on, folks. Let's keep a sense of humor about it all. Green Divas Confessions. Shh. Don't tell anyone you heard it on The Green Divas. Okay, this is going to be interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Green Diva Lynn has a confession. Yeah, it was going to be a foodie file, but I decided it was more of a confession. <laughs> um, I had a little bit of peer pressure this weekend. Oh, no. Come on, Lynn. Just <laughs> say no. I was visiting a friend who has a, a cute little cottage on Lake Michigan or, you know, a couple, couple uh, half a mile away from Lake Michigan. Uh-huh. And one of the nights we were there, we had lobster, which I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian, I'm not vegan, I'm a flexitarian. Yes. So it's not really about the fact I eat lobster and because I don't eat fish or I don't eat crustaceans because I love, I do love lobster and I love king crab legs. Lobster. Lobster. You're going to say it like you're from Maine. Lobster. Yeah, it was Maine lobster. They had a lot of lobster for sale at their local grocery store. They had live lobsters kind of crawling around slowly on top of one another in one see-through case. And across from them were the already cooked ones. (laughs) For those that didn't want to uh, kill their own. We've... (laughs) Lobster hunting. <laughs> well, like you know, they got to put a divider in there. I know. So those poor live ones don't see the dead ones. Yeah, that that does seem because <laughs> they're take, they're plucking them from the live bin, putting them in the boiling water, and tossing them into the cooked bin. Oh yeah. And I don't know. I mean, they have eyes. Well, that's the thing. They say they don't. You know, my friend Beth. God bless her. She's a beautiful, wonderful, fun woman. She's like they don't have brains, man. You're cool. It's cool. But she made, she thought it was funny. So she made me carry a, one of the bags full of lobsters. We got oh. like seven of them. Yeah. Lucky seven. <laughs> and so I had to carry a bag back to the car, which we just threw in the back seat. I, t- I put mine in very gently. Yeah. Trying to be kind. Yeah. And then we went somewhere. They sat in the back seat while we <laughs> checked out another place in the heat. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so it was did it survive like, the car ordeal? They survived. I didn't look in there to see what they were doing or anything. I didn't want to. <laughs> hey, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm the type of person I can't even kill an ant. So this is me carrying yeah. a, ba- a bag of lobsters, knowing their demise. Yeah, having to put them down in the downstairs fridge, and anytime I went in there, I'd have a little talk with them. <laughs> <laughs> I would say too. hello. Everything's I would too. okay. I totally would make their you know the rest of their lives somewhat pleasant. 
At um, least there's some human, humane, right? It's yeah, humane. I claimed that I was going to hug each one before they were plunged into the pot, but they're not that huggable. They're not that huggable. No, they're really not, and I think that would have made me feel worse. Well, yeah, but, you might as well name them, you know. Well, we we were planning to. <laughs> I don't remember what the names were. I was just kind of, uh, you know, April. You met April. She was she was kind of feeling the same way. Yeah. She well, felt bad for them being in the fridge because they're not normally just out of the water like that. Yeah, yeah. No, and, I, I have to confess myself that I mostly vegetarian, but at different times in my life, I've you know eaten lobster, and I I can't, I can't, I can't, I just can't deal with it. I'll eat lobster if it has shown up on my plate by some miracle. Mm-hmm. But I can't. <laughs> I just can't. Uh, you know, uh, my ex-husband and I had a house in Maine, and of course, every year, you know, we had to do lobster, and there was a lot of ritual around it. I, I will say yeah, that. It's a big thing. But he had to do the whole thing, like you know, you deal with it, and just you know, put a little bit on my plate after the whole things. Done. Yeah, I I went outside when they were plunged into the hot water. Yeah. And uh, apparently, because I was looking into this today, there's you know, there's some controversy around whether they're. You know, they have feelings or not have feelings. Apparently, they have a sophisticated nervous system. Mm. Um, they don't have an automatic an automatic nervous system like we do that puts us in a state of shock if we're, say, boiled or something. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Um, but who really knows? I mean, I've never been a lobster. I can't really say whether they have feelings. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Right. Should but we anthropomorphize studies, or whatever? Yeah, who knows? But there have been studies... Uh, that uh, with crabs, shore crabs, that there's some evidence that they feel pain because if they've experienced electrical shocks a couple of times, they change their behavior to yeah. avoid those electrical shocks. Well, so yeah. does that mean they're having feelings or they just prefer not to be electrically shocked? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps both. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I, I just, I, I did eat the lobster but I have to say, I, and I wanted to be very grateful that I was eating lobster because I know it's... Yeah. In fact, I forgot to give you give Beth her $20. Um, Oops. But I picked... There, there's the real confession. Come on. Right. I picked up, you know, they just had everything, the bits and pieces, some crab, or not crab, some lobster claws. I picked, the first thing was a torso. Oh, okay. <laughs> And it had its legs in a clenched position, and yeah. I was like, uh, somebody else has to open this one. Yeah. And I didn't pick any more tos- torsos out of no. the. I don't know if they really refer to them as torsos, but I that's don't... what it seemed like to me. Yeah, yeah. Is that a confession? I guess so. Yeah. Well, the confession is like, yeah, I mean, really, seriously. I. I, I the confession is, I just had this whole discussion with my son about white bread and him feeling peer pressure about white bread. Right. And like, what are you going to do next? You know? So you felt pressured into participating in all I this. I felt but very you pressured into Really, it. your heart wasn't in it. Well, I wasn't pressured into yeah. eating it. It's just that once I got to that point, I guess I did. I was, I have to, I'm enjoying it now. And even though sometimes I did actually feel like I Well, see, that's my bit. confession as a vegetarian that, um, you know, I have enjoyed lobster and I just cheat because, you know, I didn't kill it or pull it apart or mm-hmm. anything. I, I feel like a cheater because, you know, really, if you're going to do it, do it right. But, uh, nah, mm-mm, sorry. I don't like anything that's looking back at me. 
Yeah, that's it's not that's right. The thing. At least they weren't put into the bowl a hundred percent intact. Yeah, because that would have been really horrifying. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's all kind of yucky, but. Well, keep the confessions coming, Lynn. It's good fodder. Yeah, I think I have a few too many, don't I? It's uh, entertainment, and I'm I'm right I'm right there with you, sister. Okay. <laughs> have a green diva or green dude confession? Share it with us on social media or on thegreendivas.com. And let's all remember not to judge ourselves and others as we trudge this happy road of destiny towards a more sustainable way of life. Don't forget to listen to the Green Divas Radio Show on GDGD Radio. That's GDGDRadio.com. Most of the water on planet Earth contains a salt content that is great for sea life, but not so much for human life. Except for the amazing fact that our bodies closely mirror the sea. More on that after this. There's nothing like hot dogs on the grill, but as a mom, I have to be concerned about quality. That's why I buy tall grass beef hot dogs, 100% grass-fed beef, nothing artificial, gluten-free, and voted number one in taste by New York Magazine. If you want to give your family a great-tasting hot dog and one that's good for them, then your choice should be tall grass beef hot dogs. Easy to buy online at tallgrassbeef.com or ask for them at your favorite supermarket. Tall grass beef hot dogs, the healthy alternative. Buy them online at tallgrassbeef.com. You can go for days without food, but without water, you would die in three to five days. Water is the building block of life on Earth, and as freshwater supplies become more and more scarce, efforts to remove salt from the oceans for human use have ramped up. Today, billion-dollar plants take in huge reserves of seawater and distill it for use in the third world and Middle Eastern countries. The next time you have a chance to put your toes in the ocean, remember that your blood has almost the exact same mineral content and consistency as the seawater that covers 97% of the planet. I'm Bill Curtis with Earth Matters. Being green can be so sexy. Well, at least you can be sexy and keep it green. Check out the Green Divas Eco Sexy Podcast for ways to keep it green in the bedroom or wherever you like to have sex. Okay, so we're back doing another fabulous eco-sexy segment with Wendy Stragar, who is a loveologist. She is the founder of GoodCleanLove.com, author of Love That Works and an upcoming book called Sex That Works. Hi, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me again, Meg. I, I love chatting with you. It's, it's really... I don't know. Educational? Well, it's educational and, and actually, i got to be honest with you, like a lot of times I, I just feel better. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm more normal, <laughs> which is my terrible well, segue. That's seg- the goal of normalizing who we are. Well, you know, and it's a segue, a, a kind of, you know, wonky segue to the topic today, which is about what is normal. And we get so hung up on that, especially sexually. There's shame attached to, I'm not normal. Um, and whatever normal is. So I know you can riff on that and get us started on that conversation. Yeah, you know, there's a funny quote that Kim, that goes, the only normal people are the ones you don't know very well. So, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think it's a good way to sort of open up this, 
this segment because, you know, the, the, actually the number one question that people go to a sex therapist about is, uh, is this normal? You know, and even if it's a couple's thing, then they're wondering who's normal. Is you know, is she normal? Am I normal? No, that's not normal. What they want to do. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. when people have differences in their desire or the kind of things they're interested in, then it, it almost automatically always turns into a conversation about who's not normal. Right. And it's a shame, actually. Yeah. It's a shame because it limits our capacity to become erotic human beings and fulfilled in that way in so many ways. Um, and so I really feel like the heart and soul of my work has always been to normalize the truth that we are sexual, erotic human beings. And it comes really like, it's like so foundational. After we eat and sleep and drink, um, the next thing we are is a sexual human being. And if we could just get that and yeah. get over our fear of what it is to be normal or not be normal, and expand the breadth of what we accept as normal, um, then that would change everything, well, seems, literally everything. It seems to me that there have been you know, centuries of, of repression that has caused all kinds of trouble with just this topic, people trying to create normal through church, doctrine, or whatever, and uh, you know, caused all kinds of trouble. Well, you know, it's true, and we could talk about that at great length, but, you know, um, but why, you know? I mean, the church has done incredible damage to so many people's sex lives, and really, you know, there's some interesting theories about this, but, you know, the original sin, you know, um, Adam and Eve, was, many people believe, that they orgasmed, you know, that they orgasmed together, and in doing so, transcended the need for any religion. Because a deep, profound, orgasmic experience in union is really about as close to God as you can get. Uh, yep. So, inter- interesting theory. I'd never heard that one. I like it. Um, so, you know, I, you know, whatever. I don't know that I can prove that to you, but if you take <laughs> that as a base premise, you know, what's really interesting is that the largest single study that's ever been done about sexual normalcy was actually paid, by, paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation in the 40s, and it was the Kinsey study. Yeah. And they literally interviewed tens of thousands of Americans. And, um, and what happened from that study, actually tragically, although the Kinsey Institute still exists at Indiana University, and there's actually some of the best information you can get anywhere online through their sexual platform, uh, Kinsey ask, ask Kinsey Answers or something, I think is what it's called. Okay. But my friend Debbie Herbenick, um is one of the people who writes the answers for that. And I'll tell you, <laughs> it's a place that I go to often for those answers. But what they found going back to the study, and if you've never seen that, uh, that movie that was made a few years ago about the Kinsey Report, mm. um, I think Liam Neeson was in it. It was a really good cast, and it's an amazing movie. But what they found is that there really is no sexual normal, you know, that even though they were interviewing all these normal people, you know, our range of sexuality did not fit neatly into this little heterosexual missionary position box, you know, but that, in fact, it included everything under the sun that makes us human and sexual and erotic. And you know what happened? They suppressed that. They were so disturbed by the responses in that report that they suppressed it, and actually no sexual research of its kind has ever been done again. Now, what about Masters and Johnson? 
Well, that was uh, like about the same time, and that was a different kind of research that was done of really trying to understand sort of more of the mechanics. The physiology. You know, the physiology and how, you know, there, there's some very interesting, interesting sensate research done of like, you know, which is, you know, so if you're so afraid that you're not normal, what happens is that you stop being able to feel. Mm-hmm. And so, you're, you know, you can't actually experience any kind of sexual pleasure or even sensation when you are when your brain is busy in anxiety and fear about your normalcy. Yeah. So what happens is that you stop being able to feel and what Masters and Johnson did really at about that same time a little bit later than that is they started to look at how can we get people to just sense so they did this really interesting stu- um, study of like all these different hot colds firm, soft, you know, and just getting people to to pay attention to sensation, uh-huh. to get their brain out of, is this okay what I'm doing, right. and to just learn how to feel the sensations that were happening to them. And that actually was pretty successful for many people to start to experience some sexual pleasure because, you know, when we start to pay attention to sensation and we stop worrying and worrying about whether we're normal, we have access to to our bodies. We have access to, to our feeling selves. And that's where, that's where passion is. That's where sex lives. Well, of course, when you're talking about people in those studies in particular, you know, it was more of the women that were, uh, I'm sure there were men having dysfunction, but I, I think women were not expected to even really, you know, enjoy it that much. So, um, Well, I just want to say, and this is another thing in terms of normal, that many people don't discuss and don't even know, but for every woman that has sexual dysfunction, there's a man right alongside her. Yeah. It's not exactly yeah. the same sexual dysfunction, but, you know, for men it's erectile or premature ejaculation right, or right. inability to stay hard or, you know, whatever. I mean, they have, yeah. as, percentage-wise, just about as many problems as women have in arousal and pain with sex. Um, wow. So, you know, it's not... And, and the truth is that when any one partner, it doesn't matter which partner right. has sexual issues, the, the couple has those sexual issues. They share those. Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, And that is normal. Let me just tell you that yeah. sexual dysfunction <laughs> Speaking issues of normal. is profoundly normal. Yeah. It's actually almost more normal in a lifetime to have those than to not have them. That's statistically how, how prevalent sexual dysfunction is. So if you're having issues with sexuality, you are part of a, of a, of a, a very big population of people who have those issues. And the tragic thing is, is that if we could just come to terms with the fact that we are human sexual erotic beings, we could start to have real conversations about that and, and yeah. make some decisions and, and, and help each other. Well, I but guess mostly we, we don't even let, our, let ourselves talk about it. Well, so that's obviously a lead into our next conversation. So I hope in the meantime, everybody will go to your new website, which isn't really new, but it's a revived version of your blog. And will you tell me what that is again? Yeah, so please come visit me at makinglovesustainable.com. And, um, you know, we've, I've been writing Making Love Sustainable for a long time, but we just really modernized and made it beautiful and really user-friendly. There's a ton of beautiful images and really great content there. So I really hope some of your listeners will come over and see me over there. So, MakingLoveSustainable.com. And we have amazingly beautiful, incredible products at our sister site, GoodCleanLove.com. There you go. And in the meantime, let's just sort of like not – you know, focus on the word normal and just well, be. Well, let's not judge ourselves. Right. Let's be curious. Yeah. You know? I love it. Thanks, Wendy. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Turned on yet? Well, go to thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. To learn more about this Green Divas eco-sexy podcast and find other low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. What we're trying to do is to create an environment that is similar to what was there previously when the Dakota people were actually on their land sustaining their lives. That's Francis Betlion, coordinator of the Native American Medicine Garden at the University of Minnesota. The half-acre garden is now rich with plants native to the Midwest, like wild garlic, wild plum, and buffalo berry. In a woodland area, lichen, mushrooms, and wild leeks grow. Many of the plants provide edible crops, but producing food is not the only goal. What we're doing is, first and foremost, taking care of Unchimaca, which is Grandmother Earth. The soil beneath our feet, we oftentimes forget about, but that is our life. Modern farming methods often disturb the soil, releasing global warming carbon into the atmosphere. But supporting soil microbes and reintroducing native plants can help the land absorb and hold carbon. Betlion hopes the garden inspires people to grow their own food in a similar way. He says the process creates self-sufficiency and is emotionally rewarding. People can do this. It's a process of really reconnecting with what is actually life. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. The Green Divas get to talk to so many inspiring people who each in their own way is helping us find a deeper shade of green. Here's just one of them. Enjoy. Well, it's a really, really good day to be speaking to this fabulous, wow, wow, talented, award-winning photographer and explorer, Sebastian Copeland. You know, a lot of the work he's been doing for the last 10 years, books, films, photographs are about Antarctica and um, because it's like a thousand degrees in the studio right now, um, I'm really appreciating his work even more. Hi, Sebastian. Hey, Megan. <laughs> How are you? I feel like a green diva today. <laughs> or at least a green dude, right? Green dude at least, yeah. But, but you know, green divas are cool too. It is. So speaking of cool, um, your photographs, just just the minimal amount I'm sure I've, a, I've been able to, to view on your site, on one of your sites, um, they're stunning and gorgeous. But I know it must have been quite an adventure to put yourself in these places. Well, yeah, it, it has been. I mean, the... Um I've got, you know, I've got a new book coming out called uh, Arctica, the Vanishing North. And, oh, thank uh, you. I totally forgot about that in the intro. Hello. No, it's totally fine. And, um, and, so, and that book is a follow-up to, um, to a book that I did a few years ago on Antarctica. Um, and the, but the one on the Arctic, so the difference, of course, is Antarctica is to the south, what the Arctic is to the north. Right. Um, you know, the two polar regions of the planet. And Arctica, the Vanishing North, my new book, um, encompasses essentially 10 years of intense travel across the Arctic region, um, all the way from 
Alaska, Norway, uh, the northernmost territories of Canada, um, Greenland, and of course, you know, across the Arctic Sea on foot to reach the North Pole. So it's got a very comprehensive um, photographic um, testimony of, uh, of of that region. You know, what with a lot of polar bears, of course, and uh, and the ice in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of ways. And and I started the project in 2005 and just uh, released it. Literally, um, it's coming out in three days, but wow. it's already available on Amazon. So I'm pretty pretty excited about the book. Yeah, I'm one of those people that gets confused. Antarctica, Arctic, I, I, it's, you know, you just sorted it out for me in the way that you explained it for the first time. I thought, oh, I think I can manage this now. Well, you know, it's interesting because you're not the, certainly not the first person. It is confusing. But the, the, the main difference is that Antarctica, which is at the southern end, is a continent surrounded by oceans. Right. And the Arctic is, in the north, is actually an ocean surrounded by continents. So they're literally polar opposites. Um, well, yeah. right, in like many ways, apparently. Yes, exa- exactly. So the Arctic is, is essentially is a, you know, is a sea, and it's surrounded by five countries. Um, you've got Russia and Canada and the U.S. and Denmark as it manages Greenland, essentially, and then Norway. And uh, and then most of it is really a frozen ocean, which, as you know, time goes, is less and less frozen, of course. Now, so you said that you did see a lot of polar bears, which I guess is good because apparently they are diminishing. Well, I didn't see. I saw a lot of polar bears. <laughs> I mean, I have seen a number of polar okay, bears. Okay, okay. I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the Arctic region. And listen, I mean, polar bears are prevalent in the Arctic. The issue is not that they're not prevalent. Uh, they, um, they, you know, their survival depends on the sea ice because they're yeah. hunting ground is essentially uh, the sea ice. This is what's very unique and indigenous about that species. Right. They hunt seals. Uh, that's their primary f- uh, source of food. And seals have to prop themselves up on the ice in the winter in order to breathe. They're, they're mammals. Yes. So this gives the bears the opportunity to pounce on them. They wait by these breathe holes. And when the Seals come up for a breath, uh, they grab onto them, they pull them up, and then they eat them. Yeah. And with the, uh, you know, the rapid movement of the, uh, the sea ice, both in terms of its receding um, uh, you know, extent and, um, and as well its motion, because it's, you know, the thinner and the more receded it is, the, more it, the faster it moves. Right. So the, the bear populations are shifting accordingly. You know, yeah. many bear populations b- become endangered, uh, and then there's a lot of motion where they literally leave certain environments and start to uh, concentrate in uh, in in other areas. So this creates a sort of havoc to the local ecosystem, and and uh, yeah. of course it gives fodder to all kinds of different opinion makers, uh, both <laughs> on the side of climate change and against. Right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, the population is definitely being strained as a result of that. So what what would you say was the most surprising thing you encountered uh, over this this period of time? Well, the, 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 you know, what's what's really the most revealing um, aspect of how I personally I'm an explorer. I specialize in polar regions. I've crossed the Arctic Sea on on foot, I've crossed Antarctica. I did more than 4,000 kilometers on foot to wow. cross Antarctica. I did the first east to west transcontinental crossing of Antarctica. 
and I've done 2,300 kilometers on Greenland, so I've done it from wow. south to north the entire length of the, uh, of the island uh, or the continent, right. depending on how you look at it. But um, uh, So I specialize in, in, in polar exploration. That's, that's my kick, and that's, you know, I've got a couple of different world records on the ice and whatnot. And so wow. I, I come, uh, when I address climate change, I come from a personal experience point of view. I'm, okay. I'm very familiar with the scientific data. Um, I work with different agencies and other uh, doing um, observation or accumulations of, you know, observation of accumulation or, or depletion or whatnot on my trips. But I can tell you this, the Arctic, when you travel on the Arctic Sea 10 years ago relative to what it is today, is a very different experience. And I, have, I couldn't speak to what it was 20 or 30 years ago, right. but I know from people who have that even, even, it was even a worse, I mean, a, you know, a, a much greater uh, difference between present day and, and back then. And this really has to do with the fragility of the ice. The ice gets to be thinner and thinner um, because it thins out during the melt cycle, the, right. the, the summer cycle. And then it freezes over in the winter. But it's not freezing to the same thickness. And because the Arctic Sea is constantly in motion, it's just like a sea that's frozen on top. So right, you've got a right. crust of ice, but it's susceptible to wind and currents and tides, etc. So it's constantly moving. And when it moves, it breaks, and it breaks into what's called open leads of water. And then it comes back together again. But when it comes back together again, it doesn't just join where it just broke. It sort of crumbles, you know, as this massive forces are accumulating and, and, and clashing, if you will. Okay. And it creates what we call pressure ridges. And pressure ridges are essentially rubble fields of ice. And the long story of what I'm telling you is that the, the sea ice across the Arctic has become much more difficult to travel uh -huh. because it's full of rubble, big fields of big blocks of ice that makes crossing it much more challenging today than it was 30 years ago. Now, and, and you've obviously been there more than once now, so over the 10 years, you've noticed a change. Yeah, I mean, th th there, there was a very, very significant uh, difference between uh, in, in 2006 and 2007, where it experienced the, the greatest depletion uh, with two years in a row of record depletion of the ice index, uh, they both lost about a half a million square miles. And uh, since then, it's continually losing index, although uh, 2000, uh, 2013 and 2014 had a slight increase relative to what it was before. Right. Uh, and, and so this is giving, you know, fodder to the skeptics because they go, oh, look, there's an increase of the sea ice. Yeah. Except, of course, you know, if, you're, if you start with 10 and you go down to 2, if you have $10 in your pocket, right, you right. get $2, and somebody gives you 50 cents, it's not like all of a sudden you're in the black, yeah. you know. <laughs> you're, still, uh, yeah. you're still at a, at a deficit, and that's essentially what it is on the sea ice at the moment. Mm. Well, was there was there anything other than the the sheer beauty? And I and I assume some of the beauty, um, I don't know, is some of the landscape and the beauty of it a part of the changing that's going on? 
Well, they, they, to the you know to the uh, you know to the uninformed eye or to the visitor, or whatever. But the Arctic yields absolutely extraordinary vistas and uh, a beauty that is uh, um, you know completely unique to that type of environment. Um, you know, icebergs themselves yield shapes that are um, almost otherworldly. Yeah. You see a variety of different um, types of shape that the ice creates. And then the sea ice itself, uh, you know, has, has amazing qualities. I, you know, I've traveled in minus 40, minus 50 degree weather. This Ooh. is outside of windshield. You know, with Ooh. windshield, you're down to minus 70 and colder even. Uh, and so in those types of environment, moisture crystallizes. And so it creates these very, very fine um, crystals of ice that you walk on. And it's a little bit like being in, you know, in, in like the world of, you know, Superman's layer. Uh, oh, or, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 you know, this kind of completely monochromatic, extraordinarily beautiful type of environment. Uh, but it is dangerous. That's, uh, you know, you're, you're definitely facing a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of potential um, life-threatening dangers. Oh, I, I, I mean, just being in that kind of cold itself can be very dangerous, let alone sure. the perils of, you know, I, I don't even know what, tell me what, like, some some of the dangerous things you've encountered. Well, I mean, I've, you know, I've fallen right through the ice in, in minus 40 degree weather. So, oh. you know, I've, I've, I've sort of had the unfortunate experience of um, of dropping through um, through the ice and um, uh, you know just a thin layer and 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 I, I went clean through to my neck in, oh. in in Arctic Sea so that's never fun. Oh, um, that had to hurt. Know, it's uh, you know you have to get down to your skivvies in, uh, in minus forty and change very quickly to dry clothes and. Uh, and that's um, that's definitely a Kodak moment. Um, <laughs> and I've been, been down in my tent on Greenland for seven consecutive days with uh, hurricane strength winds. So you know we had seventy, eighty mile hour winds. Oh. Um, and you're only protected and surviving thanks to uh, the thin uh, fabric of your tent. Uh, so I I've, I spent seven days in a tent with yeah. with that kind of storm raging outside. Um, I've been attacked by polar bears. Oh, uh, wow. Wait, great. wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> and you <laughs> live to tell about it? Very close in encounters with polar bears. Well, you know, you wouldn't travel in the, um, in the Arctic region uh, without a weapon unless you had a suicide wish. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I'm not a big proponent of, of weapon as a, as a matter of right. uh, fact, but the, 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 there are certain environments where... This is, um, you know, absolutely uh, mandatory, and uh, the Arctic certainly is one of them. So the idea is not to injure or kill the bear, but, of course, to deter them from wanting to make you, the, you know, their next sort of deep-fried breakfast. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Nice. Oof. Oh, look, a large seal. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they think of yeah, you as. Yeah. That, that yeah, seal's but... walking. Ooh. But getting, you know, I've got to, I've gotten to be very, very close to polar bears. Um, you know, I, I have photographs in my book where polar bears are literally within eight feet, and um, and I, there's a certain dynamic that you establish after deterring them with a with a, with a weapon by firing next to them and you know and and intimidating them with that. I've had one that was very persistent. He charged me three times. Oh, um, it actually was a female, but. Uh, Oh, she must have had babies uh, nearby or something. 
No, no, no. She was a young female. She oh. was neither pregnant nor um, she's just feisty. You know, have a litter with her, and she. Uh, but she was just hungry, and, um, and she saw me and and figured that she'd get a snack out of it. But uh, um, I managed to deter her with three rounds. You know, over the course of three uh, three attacks, uh, short order attacks. You know, and um, and then by then they're very smart animals. She understood that this was not going to um, right. yield a positive. Uh, net for her, and um, and then I proceeded to follow her, and uh, she um, as she was sort of meandering on the sea ice, and I got to be within very very close distance to her, which is not something I would necessarily recommend, nor candidly probably do again. But uh, <laughs> but at least it, it got me some great shots. Well, I mean, I guess that's what happens when you're out there in the moment. Things evolve, situations evolve, and uh, you know they're not to be repeated necessarily couldn't be repeated they, they, they shouldn't at least not if you've got a <laughs> you know a healthy cake for living oh my god um so tell us when is your book coming out well, the book is coming out officially on september 15th so oh. uh in, uh, in just uh six seven days um okay and, well, uh, while it's this called, uh, yeah, it's called arctica the vanishing north mm. and um, i'm very proud of it richard branson so richard branson uh, you know virgin yeah. Um, uh, did the, uh, the the foreword for the book, and then um, I've got the Los Angeles mayor Eric Garcetti, who contributed the text to it, as well as a couple of uh, lead scientists for the um, uh, for the uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental right. Panel on Climate Change for the UN. So, Dr. Um, Andrew Weaver and Dr. Ted Cambos, who works at the uh, National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado. And I've uh, got who I consider to be the greatest polar explorer of, of, uh, of you know, living explorer at least, and perhaps one of the very best of all, all times, um, Borge Usland, who's a Norwegian explorer. And then finally, um, Sheila Wetklutje, who's um, who spent many, many years as the Inuit um, chairwoman of okay. the Circumpolar Conference, which basically represents the, uh, the larger body of Inuits in the Arctic. So all these guys all contributed some text in it, and then the photos cover, as I said, you know, lots yeah. of Greenland, um, uh, the Arctic Sea, all the way to the North Pole, and then Canada, Norway, Alaska, and stuff. There's polar bears, there's seals, there's whales, there's eagles. And, oh, uh, and there's just your stunning, stunning eye and reindeer, and and, um, and of course, you know, lots of lots of beautiful ice. Talent for you know, unbelievably talented. Um, photographer uh, out there freezing <laughs> on our behalf so we can learn and benefit. Uh, and I'm assuming the book can be found through the normal channels, Amazon, and perhaps even your own site? No, yeah, on Amazon. You'll find it on Amazon. And then, um, you know, you can also go, yeah, SebastianCopeland.com. Okay. Um, that's, uh, that's my site. But, uh, but Amazon will give you, you know, you'll get a better discount than probably anywhere else. Um, and, um, <laughs> but you should go check out SebastianCopeland.com anyway and just see, you know, all the various things and and the visual experience. Um, and, of course, you're a filmmaker, and we can't get into all that right now because we've got to close, but hopefully we will get to yeah. speak to you again soon. That, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Thank you, Megan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Hope you enjoyed that as much as they did. 
please visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. For more fun podcasts and information on the Green Divas and low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green. You've been listening to the Green Divas Radio Show. Be sure to look for this and other Green Diva Network podcasts on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, Swell Radio, and Spreaker. Get social with the Green Divas on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Subscribe to the Green Divas YouTube channel to watch them in action. And for all the latest good green news, visit thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com. 